Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Been a hard year, hasn't it? Who would have thought that 2020 would have been the kind of year that it is? And today, I want to give us some hope, even in the middle of another freight train that's coming our way called the 2020 election. Y'all ready for that? Yeah, everybody's like, no, I don't think so. In fact, it's tough, isn't it? I'm talking with people in their 80s that are now telling me, Pastor, I have never seen the country this divided. These are people who lived during the Great Depression. Some of them fought in the Vietnam War, telling me it wasn't as divided then as it is now. And and so November's coming, kind of feels like a freight train. Your family dinner table may have even been interrupted by by some of this stuff, or you've sensed a notable uptick in, in your own anxiety. Well, this morning, I think the Lord wants to give his people two things. I want to, he wants to give us hope and he wants to give us a mission. And that's what I want us to talk about today. But to do that, we're going to have to have some hard conversations. You may have to push the reset button on the way you have conversations as we approach November and even as we get beyond it and move toward January. I'm going to talk next week from Jeremiah 29 more specifically about that mission, just to remind us that, that our mandate as followers of Jesus has not changed. It has not moved an inch. And so when we look at everything from COVID to, to, to racial tension to an upcoming very divisive election, all the other things that, that could really trouble our spirits, and we go, what now? Really the answer to that question is the same thing that it was before that. We're going to look at that next week. But this morning I want to give you some hope, and I want to start giving you hope by just letting you laugh a little bit. How long has it been since you've just been able to laugh? right? Especially, let me ask you this more particular question. When's the last time you heard a political joke, even one given at the expense of your own views, and you just laughed at it? Do you remember those days? You remember those days when you could just laugh, have a good time, pass it off? And and so we're just, the, the best kind of political comedy, by the way, is the kind of political comedy that offends everybody. You remember that? It was there. And so I want to begin this morning by just just lightening up a little bit, because the Bible actually tells us to do this. Take a look at just a couple of verses here. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. How many of you feel like you got dried up bones this year? Just everything that's happened. You know what's good medicine for that? Uh, The writer of Proverbs says, a joyful heart, and a joyful heart includes laughter. Even Job, in the midst of his suffering, says in Job 8.21, yet Will he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting, and he means there's shouts of joy. This is the Bible's way of telling us that occasionally the best medicine for a troubled heart is to just lighten up. And so I think the best way to do that is to let's talk about some terms that might trigger some of you, terms that have been kind of controversial, terms that really don't even sometimes have a common definition when we're arguing uh, with each other, particularly during an election year. A fellow pastor from Ohio came up with these definitions, and we're going to start with a really, really hot button one. Let's start with socialism. When we're talking about socialism, some of you probably think it's a good idea. Others of you think it's a horrible idea. But what is it exactly? Well, socialism is when you have two cows. The government takes one of your cows and gives it to your neighbor, and then somehow the government ends up with all the cows, and everybody has to wait in line for the milk. Socialism. Now, if you're a capitalist, you thought that was funny, but do you think this definition of capitalism is funny? You have two cows. You lay one off and force the other to produce the milk of four cows, and you are surprised when your cow drops dead. Capitalism. Now, those two systems are argued about right now, and we have the freedom to do that because we live in a democracy, right? What's a democracy? The government promises to give you two cows if you vote for candidate X. After the election, lobbyists ensure your cow ends up in an industrial farm. That's democracy. Now, 
There, there's a couple of different platforms now when we talk within our democracy about the way forward for the country. Different ways that we feel, and there's lots of strong opinions, even in our church, about which way civil society ought to go. And, and, and it's been expressed in different ways throughout the history of the country, but for the last several decades, it's been expressed in two primary ways. One of those ways is the Democratic Party platform. You have two cows. Your neighbor has none. You feel guilty for being so more successful, so you vote politicians into office who tax your cows, which forces you to sell one of the cows they tax. Politicians use that money to buy that cow for your neighbor. You feel better about yourself. Katy Perry sings for you. Now, what about the Republican Party platform? Well, it's actually a lot simpler. You have two cows. Your neighbor has none, so you move to a better neighborhood. And all of this, even right now, you're like, I don't think that's very funny. Well, you need to lighten up, all right? Because it's better than a dictatorship. You have two cows, the government takes them both and shoots you. Probably feel better after you laugh, right? I mean, the, the, the writer of Proverbs is right. It, it really is good medicine. And it even provides some perspective sometimes that some of the things that I get so wound up about when I'm watching the nightly news or scrolling through my social media feed are things I probably don't need to be nearly as wound up about. But our current environment has stolen that, hasn't it? We don't have the ability to laugh much anymore because our current environment of toxicity has stolen our joy by stealing our ability to laugh. And in fact, we've learned from our culture how to respond in far more toxic ways, have we not? My good friend Andrew Hanauer, who helped us start One America West Virginia, right here at Covenant to combat opioid addiction in the tri-state area. Uh, the folks over at One America have done some brain science research, and what they've discovered is that there is a correlation between defense activity in the brain that is correlated to political speech. You know what that means? It means if I say something political that you disagree with, and you're not aware of what's going on in your brain, your brain is going to cause you to react to me, at least mentally, if not physically, in exactly the same way that you would react if I were coming at you with a weapon. Did you know that? That's the brain science behind this. That's the brain science behind polarization. And, and what that produces is what I'll call a fight or flight approach to political conversation that is really dominated in this country for at least four years and maybe even beyond. Do you fight or do you flee? Which, which one is it? Well, fighting kind of looks like this, particularly in the church. Real Christians will vote for, right, fill in your favorite candidate's name. And I've already heard it from some of you and some of you and people out in the community. I don't understand how anybody who calls themselves a Christian could vote for Donald Trump. Pastor, I don't understand how anybody who calls themselves a Christian would vote. Well, here's a clue. Maybe you should ask them. They're your brother your sister, and I'm going to tell you this, that relationship is far more important than your relationship with your favorite candidate. I don't care who he is. Far more important. But this is where we're at. That's, that's fight, right? You get voter guides. What's that voter guide telling you? Well, if you're a real Christian, you'll vote for this one. You'll vote for that one. Listen, when we insert a qualification for Christian orthodoxy that Scripture does not prescribe, that's the very definition of heresy. It's the very definition of heresy. James Davison Hunter of the University of Virginia has said that the overwhelming witness of the Christian church throughout the 20th century was a political witness. He's talking about whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, we have far too often and more often talked about our politics than we have our Savior. And that's a problem. So you can fight. The other extreme is flight. So the answer is, yeah, there's, it's toxic, it's ugly, Pastor. I just, you know what? I think the answer is, let's just not bring politics into the church at all. Let's don't discuss it. And I've had people ask me before, do you really think it's appropriate to discuss politics in the church? I don't know. Is there some area of my life or yours over which Jesus is not Lord? You tell me. I think maybe it is highly appropriate that we do that. In fact, Jesus did it. He just didn't do it in the way that you and I have been conditioned by our culture to do it. Look at Matthew 5, 14. This is Jesus' vision of his people in the public square. You, he said, he's talking about you, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The late Ronald Reagan, the late president, used to use that passage in, in his stump speeches in the 1980s. I personally loved President Reagan, which, which is kind of hard for me to say that because it saddens me uh, that I loved him because I have to say he was dead wrong about this. 
when he appeals to this verse, he was talking about the United States. But brothers and sisters, when Jesus quoted this passage, he was not talking about that city being confined to any earthly kingdom. He wasn't talking about the United States of America or any other temporary nation state. He was talking about the church of the living God, which should give us some great hope. We can have great hope this morning. And furthermore, I can't just, it's not just that I can give you hope. You can be the conduit of that hope of the rest of the world in the midst of this nasty, dog-eat-dog, highly polarized, highly politicized, hate-filled nation. But before you give that hope, you have to embody it. So the hope that you and I can have as followers of Jesus, even in the middle of this election that's just coming at us like a freight train, is that we can be the city set on a hill. You're like, even in the midst, especially in the midst of the world that we're seeing. But in order to do that, we have to cease giving in to culture's form of dialogue, culture's form of conversation. I want to give you five ways that we can be the hope that Jesus is talking about. Now, I warn you, these are not going to be easy. But if you can bust through these, I'll tell you, if you can honor the Lordship of Christ enough to do these five things, the next two months of your life will be filled with much less anxiety, will be filled with much more hope, and you will be able to model, our church, in fact, will be able to model to the rest of the world what it looks like to navigate troubling times like these. Number one, have the conversation. Have the conversation. See, some of the same disagreement that exists in the world today, some of the same divergent understandings of the best way to move civil society forward exist in this room right now. Because I've talked to enough of you. I've listened to enough of you. I know that that's the case. Pastor Joe uh, did a, a video project for us uh, several weeks ago. He went out on the streets and he was doing interviews. And, and, and I found it interesting because he came back. He went to one particular place. I'm not going to name it. But he said, man, I just, I just kind of got steamrolled by some people there. He said, they, I don't know. He said, they, they just think we're a bunch of far-right Trump supporters. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I was just talking to people a couple of weeks earlier who thought we'd just full bore given in to cultural Marxism and we're a bunch of liberals out here. And you know what? That's probably not bad that those various perceptions exist of Covenant Church. You know why? Because I know you guys. I know those of you who are part of this church family. And we actually are a pretty diverse, probably more diverse politically than the town of Shepherdstown. We got people here that when you leave, you're going to put your MAGA hat on and you're going to go to your car. And I love you as a brother and sister in Christ. We got others you're going to put on your blue Biden t-shirt the minute you get to that barbecue tomorrow. And I love you as my brother and sister in Christ. And that, to my knowledge, has always been the case. Some of you are going to vote third party, by the way. I don't mean to leave you out. I'm sorry. It's always been that way as far as I know here at Covenant. Far more diverse people whose votes are going to cancel each other out, worshiping Jesus side by side every single Sunday. So if you want hope, here's the hope that I have as a pastor. As I look at this congregation and look through that camera and know there are many of you still at home right now, I look and I think about where we're at as a country and I go, what more powerful example of national unity could there be than the precious people that I pastor? Here's the problem, though. Too many of us have fallen for the myth that the way we foster that unity is to just not talk about it. We have to talk about it. Let me tell you why. Because when you cordon off politics from faith, you know what you get? You get a Christless politic. You get precisely the kind of nasty that we're seeing right now. And by the way, Paul agrees, which is why he reminds us of the following, and I'm just going to repeat for you the passage that Pastor Phil read at the outset of our time together. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now he's going to narrow his focus and get very, very particular. Where there are thrones, that's a seat of authority. All right, somebody has a badge, that's a seat of authority. I have a certain measure of authority that's been granted me. Whoever gets elected and sworn in on January 20th, they have a seat of authority endowed in an office that they're going to hold. Same thing with Senate and representative. Those things have been created by and for Jesus. That's what Paul told us. Where the thrones 
or dominions, that's the realm of authority. Some of you are police officers and you have a, a jurisdiction, right? And once you cross a county line or a city limit, you don't have the same arrest powers that you might have when you're inside there. Some of you are federal officers and your jurisdiction extends to as far as the borders of the United States of America. But whatever your sense of authority, that's called a realm of authority. Thrones, dominions. Then there's rulers of our, or authorities. Those are the persons that are endowed with that authority. You know what Paul is saying here? Jesus is Lord over all of them, even if they don't recognize it. And in fact, he goes on even further to say, these powers don't even exist without him. And if you don't think that includes the government of the United States, you are fooling yourself. This nation exists only and because the Lord Jesus permits it to exist. That's what we're taught in Scripture. Now, how is that compatible in any way with the statement, don't bring politics into the church. Now, if you mean by that, well, we shouldn't bring the world's approach to political debate into the, you're exactly right about that. You're exactly right about that. But where we've got to be careful is in thinking that we just, we're just going to be silent and somehow we're going to have this false unity and, and somehow we're, everything's going to be okay. Listen, the vision of Jesus for his people includes modeling what I've called a city within a city, that there is a church of the living God gathered right here that is its own city within the larger city. And I have to ask, how many churches in America can be looked to by the local municipalities around them as a model for how to talk through our disagreements, how to solve problems, how to bring out the best in humanity? That hope, brothers and sisters, has been given to you and me. And when we're silent, we keep that hope from the world. We need to talk. That's what the scriptures would tell us. But when you do, the conversation has to be different. Because how many of you have heard people talking and you're like, especially about this thing that's coming in November, and you're like, I don't want to be a part of that conversation. Huh? Well, if you're going to have the conversation, you need to do it by including several other elements. Beginning with this one. Assume the best. Now, that's not what culture would have you do, but you must assume the best. See, the approach of the world looks like this. If we disagree, you and I, I assume the worst. I use the worst possible examples of what you say you believe to try to disprove you. Straw men arguments, ad hominem arguments, and the like. was talking to a young 16-year-old girl right after the first service, and she said, well, people just call me stupid. And I said, well, all you can do is just say, look, I'm sorry we disagree, and walk away. Because when you resort to name-calling, that's it, okay? Stupid, repub, snowflake. You, you can't talk like that and be a follower of Jesus and actually expect that the conversation is going to get anywhere okay but that's what our world has taught us to believe right i disagree so i assume the worst i cancel you i see you as evil i see you as the other I see you as the people's gonna you you're part of that group's gonna destroy the country our friends over at over zero uh, have a sociological term for this they call it motive attribution asymmetry let me break that down for you okay motive this is the reason why i believe what i believe the reason why i say the things i say attribution, you are attributing to me a motive, right? You're assuming about me, well, this is why you say that, or this is why you think that. Asymmetry means it's unevenly applied, all right? So how does that work? Well, pretty much like this. If whoever you're going to vote for in November gets up, you obviously agree with them or you wouldn't vote for them, right? At least on most things. They get up and they give a speech. You assume the absolute best about that person. You attribute the best motives to that person. When that person steps off or goes off the rails, you make excuses for that person. Conversely, when the person that you hope does not win in November gets up and speaks, you attribute the worst motives to that person. You're always finding fault with that person. One side can do no wrong. The other side can do no right. That's motive attribution asymmetry. When you're on my team, I assume the best about everything. When you're on that other team, I assume the worst. Let's take a rather, what really shouldn't be, but is a kind of a controversial subject today. Let's look at immigration. You know, the, the Bible teaches two things with abundant clarity that would apply to that discussion. It tells us, first of all, not only in the Old Testament and throughout the prophets, but it's specifically in Matthew 25 to protect and welcome the foreigner. And then it tells us also to obey and submit to the laws of the land. 
which means we protect society with laws. Laws are not bad. But it also means that laws, and we see this in the prophets, can sometimes uh, be unjust when people created in God's image are abused or mistreated under the banner of law and order. All right? So, so be careful conflating terms. You're a Christian before you're anything, before you're any kind of, uh, have any other kind of, of political affiliation. So when we talk about law and order, let's believe in it, but let's be careful. Let's define it carefully and let's admit. Otherwise, unless you've forgotten about Nazi Germany, that's possible to have law and order and not have justice. So what are Christians supposed to do? We're supposed to advocate for just, compassionate law, and then we are supposed to submit to it. And those are the things that really ought to guide conversations like this. But, but does that really guide conversations around immigration? I mean, let, let's be honest with each other, right? I mean, in some, in some contexts, all you got to do is quote Matthew 25. You're just quoting the Bible. You're not even doing anything. And what's the conclusion of some people? Well, you just want lawlessness and open borders and everything else. On the other hand, you may go, you know what? Nation states exist for a reason. Layered security is actually a really important part of ongoing prosperity, including for the immigrants who come to our, our shores or walls. Probably not a bad idea. What's the, what's the automatic conclusion of some people? You're just a racist. You're just this, right? We cannot have the conversation in that way. It's got to be different. We can't, at work in both of those situations, you know what it is? The attribution of the worst possible motives to the other person. And the ignoring of complexity, the ignoring of nuance. Yeah, some, I find that some people are in the middle on a, a lot of different things. Not in a, in a sense that they're squishy moderates and they don't know what to believe but in the sense that they go, well, this, neither this platform nor this platform really deals with everything the way it should. And those people feel marginalized in general. Uh, look at this statement from Sho Baraka. He's a Christian, a musician, an activist. He says, as an African-American, I'm marginalized by a lack of compassion on the right. As a Christian, I'm ostracized by the secularism of the left. As a man, I'm greatly concerned by subversive attempts to deconstruct all classical definitions of manhood. So you tell me, which box does he belong in? Does he have to belong in a box to be a follower of Jesus? Is that actually true? See, but I find actually most people, when you talk to them and you break things down, they're kind of like this. The categories that you see on the nightly news are not nearly as neat and clean as we think they are. And within the church, our behavior toward each other, even and especially when we disagree, should not be characterized by motive attribution asymmetry. It should be characterized by a much simpler word, love. How many times do we see in the New Testament, Jesus and others tell us to love one another. And what does Paul tell us about love? A lot of things, actually, but look at this one passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You take all that and put it in a blender. You know what the big idea is here? Paul is saying love does not assume the, the worst. Love assumes the best. It means I might disagree with you. Our disagreements might be strong. But if you worship next to me each and every Sunday morning, you are the blood-purchased object of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You're my brother. You are my sister, which means my objective, even in my disagreement with you, is never to win or to beat you or to own you, whatever in the world that's supposed to mean. It is to unite with you under the lordship of Jesus. So when we approach each other with that disposition, we will assume the best of each other's motives. Have the conversation assuming the best. Thirdly, have that conversation assuming the best, working the problem, which means you got to get into the meat of the stuff. Here's, a, here's another myth. It is that unity means either on the one hand, we have to all think exactly the same way, or secondly, that in order to get unity, what we've got to do is all, all of us have got to compromise. We've got to find some mushy middle ground to stand on together. And, and here's the hard truth. There's people in this room and on the other side of that camera that you're going to walk into the voting booth in November. I know this because I've talked to you. You're going to walk into the voting booth in November and every candidate, every issue you vote on will be the cancellation of the vote that someone else in this room or on the other side of that camera gives. We're going to have votes to cancel each other out at Covenant. Same team. In fact, I'll go one further. I'll tell you this. I know married couples for whom this is true. 
You're like, how in the world do they stay married? Because they recognize that a presidential candidate's not as important as their freaking spouse. That's how they get through it. So we've made way, way too much of this. The myth is that a unified church means we can't have strong opinions. Individual members need to always agree. And this is what we forget, okay? We think we're divided now, and I understand, and I appreciate the fact that it's, it's very divided, very polarized right now. But we forget that we're part of a 2,000-year history as followers of Jesus Christ. We forget that some of the issues that were being dealt with in the first century in Rome make some of the divisions between Republicans and Democrats today look like a Sunday afternoon picnic. Let me just remind you, brothers and sisters, that the followers of Jesus consisted of government bureaucrats who collected taxes and sought through their jobs to prop up the system, and it also included insurrectionists whose ultimate goal was to completely tear that system down. Same team. Same team. The early church, after the resurrection of Jesus, consisted of Roman soldiers whose job was to serve and protect and defend the republic and political zealots who wanted the Roman Empire out of everybody's business. Same team. Same team. And you know what those people did? You're like, how in the world did they reconcile those? I, I don't know exactly how all of that happened. There are many historians that are way smarter than me who could probably explain that better than me, but I do know this. I know those people with those radically different approaches, radically different understandings of the best way to move civil society forward. They covered the world with the most glorious message that has ever been shared in the history of humanity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did it in less than 70 years. And so based on merely that small little nugget of history, I would submit this to you, brothers and sisters. If the gospel you're hearing is incapable of keeping Republicans and Democrats in the same room worshiping Jesus together, whatever you're listening to is not the gospel. This is where we are. And we're either going to learn to unite under the lordship of Jesus and work the problem, or we're going to just be just like the world. Let me tell you a little bit of what this looks like. I'll give you one example. From Macedonia, diverse port city, Paul planted a church at Philippi. There's people from every background and walk of life, people who have radically differing understandings of culture who became part of that church. So as you can imagine, there, not every conversation was rosy. And in that church arose a sharp dispute between two matriarchal figures, a woman named Euodia and another one named Sintuke. And as you can imagine, anytime there's a conflict in a church and anytime that conflict surrounds um, personalities that are well-known, what's the temptation going to be? You're going to pick a team, right? You're going to pick a team. That's exactly what happened. How does Paul seek to deal with this? Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Sintuke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. I love these women. These women are my sisters, and this is not good. It is not healthy. And so I entreat both of you. Here's the interesting thing. You notice what the issue is? Go home and read the whole letter. It, it ain't there. Nobody even know. Were they arguing about marginal tax rates? Were they arguing about what color the curtains ought to be in the sanctuary? What were they fighting about? No one knows. Apparently, it's because Paul thought, compared to the relationship, the other crap wasn't really that important. He says, I want the two of you to learn to agree together in the Lord. And by the way, the rest of you in this congregation, stop picking teams and come together around those women and unite under the lordship of Jesus that's what we're told here. This is how you work the problem. It doesn't mean you can't have a strong opinion. It also doesn't mean the issues aren't important. All right? There's some very important issues at the national level, at the state level, being discussed right now. I'm not telling you it's unimportant. I'm not telling you that one way or another might be the difference between ongoing prosperity and, and decline as a nation. I'm not, I'm not telling you that the ideals that people are fighting for respectively are not incredibly consequential. But I am asking you to recognize this. Number one, assume the best about your brother or sister. They're not trying to tear the country down just because they have a vision that you don't share. And three other things. 
It's, if you're going to actually work the problem, assume the best, here's what you have to understand. And it, buckle up. These things can be quite shocking. Okay, you ready? Number one, the church is more important than the country. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is, I'll just go ahead and say it, exponentially more important than the United States of America. Well, pastor, if it weren't for America and all this freedom, we, there wouldn't be any covenant church. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You really believe that? You have a woefully underdeveloped understanding of the power of the church. There's not a nation state, including this one, that will exist at the end of the age. This one, just like every other one that came before it, has a shelf life. It might come before or it might come at the second coming of Jesus. But this nation state, just like every other nation state, read the prophets, Isaiah in particular, and he moves through those ancient nation states, Egypt and Tyre and Babylon and Persia and all these other empires, one by one, just saying, this one's going to fall, 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 this one's going to fall. Why, why does he say all of that? Because he's saying your trust needs to be in the Lord and not in alliances with political powers. doesn't make those political discussions unimportant, but what it does do is it calls our attention to what is most important. The body of Christ is more important than the country if for no other reason than at some point the country's not going to exist anymore but 10,000 years from now the church still will the church is more important than the country secondly your relationships especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ are more important than your political loyalties they just are number three Modeling godly approaches to conflict is more important than winning. So have the conversation. Assume the best. Work the problem. Now, this next one is a key ingredient in being able to do all of that. Listen and learn. How many of you have seen Hamilton? Either like me and you did it on the cheap over Disney+. Plus, or you actually had the means and you went to Broadway and saw it before COVID shut the world down some off-Broadway production. Uh, th this is the original cast, Lin-Manuel Miranda as Hamilton, Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr. This is the, the account of their first meeting, and he's, Hamilton is getting some political advice from Aaron Burr. He said, how do, you, how do you succeed? Anybody remember that song? Talk less, smile more. I don't even remember how, I don't remember the melody or I'd sing it for you. Then you'd be entertained today. What's the latter part of that? Never let them know what you're against or what you're for. Right. I, in, in the context of that discussion, probably not the best advice. But I've been thinking about those words. Talk less. Washington's character actually tells Hamilton that later on. Talk less. Talk less. You know who else has a similar idea? Jesus' bold baby brother James. Listen to James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Remember that next time you're on social media. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you refuse to listen to each other, you get in trouble. And the only way you're going to listen to each other is if you close your mouth. And that's where your hope comes from. All right? Talk less. Smile more. What? How hard is this? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. As it has been well said, there's a reason God gave you two ears and only one mouth. Sometimes the best thing to do is listen. Sometimes you don't even understand the other side. You've just been conditioned by culture to hate it. And I'm not even telling you you got to go there. I'm just saying learn to listen. There's a group called Beyond Conflict. For the last 75 years, they've been working to fight polarization and politically oriented violence in multiple countries, done it successfully. Just right after the 2016 election, many of them came back to the United States, and they were trying to figure out what's causing some of the polarization here in the United States, what's causing these deep divisions. And they, and they did a survey to, to gauge something called meta-perception. You know, what's, what's meta-perception? Meta-perception is what I think you think about me, right? 
So we don't talk a lot, but I don't know, maybe the way you look at me or your body language or whatever, and I interpret that in a certain way. I might get that right, I might get that wrong, and if I get it wrong, it's bad. That's a meta-perception. I go, man, I think he's judging me. I think he, Turns out, once I talk to the other individual, they, they actually like me or admire me. What happened? Well, I, I let a meta-perception get in the way. So let's go back to that touchy immigration issue for a moment. Here's what they did. They, they polled Republicans and Democrats, and they asked them more than one or two questions, because when we talk about a subject like immigration, we're talking about a highly nuanced, highly complex issue, right? So they asked them a battery of questions. What do you believe about immigration? This was the result. Blues the Democrats, reds the Republicans. You, so you're like, is there, are there distinct differences? There are. But look at all that overlap. Look at all that area where they're like, oh, oh, wow, there's some actually some places here where we could work together. Now, after they did that, they asked the same exact questions, same exact battery questions to the same people, but it wasn't what do you believe, it was this, what do you believe the other side believes? Here's the difference. See, we're actually a lot closer than we think we are, but we've been conditioned by our culture to divide the house. By the way, your, your Facebook algorithms when you're scrolling, they're designed to do this, to do two things. Number one, to put things in front of you that you agree with, to put the worst forms of what you disagree with in front of you, and to raise your anxiety level. You know why? Because that's what keeps you scrolling, and that, as, as a result, is what keeps the ad buys coming in. That doesn't make Facebook evil, but if you don't realize that, all of a sudden you're going to get trapped in this bubble and think that you're seeing everything clearly. Meta-perception drives us apart rather than actually keeping us from working the problem. And you know what the missing ingredient is in that? The ability to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Because you know our world doesn't act like this. Our world is all about something called confirmation bias. You know what that is? I'm going to default to news sources, magazines, books, articles, whatever, people, radio personalities, television personalities that reinforce what I already believe. I don't want to be challenged by another perspective. I, I, I know what I know. I am not going to change. I'm only going to watch media that confer, confirms this. And then when this starts bleeding over into your faith, it's I, I, man, I'm only going to listen to preachers that say those kinds of things. So if I don't get, and then, and then a guy like me says, well, maybe I can just be silent about it. And then, well, that's not enough for these people. They, they want you to actually say, have you heard that adage? Some, some people don't want to hear your opinion. They want to hear their opinion coming out of your mouth, right? Paul had a description of these kinds of people. He shared it with his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This isn't what I want to hear. Therefore, it must not be the truth. This makes me uncomfortable. Therefore, I refuse to grow. This is what you call consumeristic religion. I want what I want. Hope doesn't come from that. Hope comes from the body of Christ being willing to listen to each other and hear each other out. Did you know that nationally, 6% of people are on the extreme right and another 6 on the extreme left? And when I say extreme, I don't just mean opinions. I mean they're unwilling to listen to the other side and they're actually ready to start a freaking war. 12% of the country. The other 88% are in the middle, and they're what David Brooks of the New York Times calls the exhausted majority, allowing the extremes to control the conversation. Brothers and sisters, you and I have the capacity under the Lordship of Jesus to teach the world to have a better conversation, to tell a better story. But we've got to assume the best. We've got to work the problem. We've got to do these things. We've got to listen and learn. But then the last thing we do may, need to do may be the hardest thing of all. We need to check our loyalty. Jesus mentions this in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that last phrase? Here's the goal. The world should believe that Christ has come from God. How's that going to happen? How's the world going to believe in Jesus? Winning arguments? 
winning at the polls, fighting the culture war. Jesus said they will believe when they see my people as one to the same degree. He goes on to define this. This isn't, again, this isn't mushy middle oneness. To the same degree that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. My people will exhibit the same level of unity that exists within the Trinity. That's when people are going to know and believe that I am who I say I am. Now, don't miss that because the Trinity is important, right? It teaches us there is one and only one God, but that one God exists in three distinct persons. We spent four centuries, the first four centuries of the church, trying to hammer all this out. What do the scriptures teach us about the nature of God? And one of the things we've learned in the rest of history is that whenever the distinct persons of the Trinity are minimized so you can emphasize oneness, or on the other hand, when the oneness of God is minimized so that you can emphasize maybe one member of the Trinity over another, the result was always heresy. And so this Trinitarian reflection is that in the body of Christ, we should reflect that we are people. We are distinct And sometimes we even have different opinions. We don't lay those down for some kind of false unity, but the unity of the Godhead should be clearly seen in how this diverse body stands together, inseparable under his lordship. We're going to disagree. We may disagree until Jesus comes back, but that's okay because we agree that Jesus will straighten it all out, and so we will stand together under his lordship, even as our votes may cancel each other out. And we're going to model for the rest of the world how to have the kinds of conversations that drive us together and do not separate us and drive us apart. So here's the bottom line. If you think only Republicans are people who genuinely follow Jesus, or you think only Democrats are people who can genuinely follow Jesus, then you're not following Jesus. In fact, if that's you, because I get it. I get some people, I just don't understand. It's okay to not understand. All right? I have opinions myself. There's things I don't understand. But, but when you're tempted to go there, ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, who is really discipling you at that moment? Who are you really following? And number two, more importantly, what is the end of that discipleship? Remember James. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. That that may be the biggest threat to the unity of the body. It's not the Republican platform or the Democratic platform. Some of my greatest frustration, and I'm not putting this on you guys or aiming at you, I'm just kind of being honest here, is I get you for about an hour a week. The news media you consume, the social media interactions you have, upwards of 80 hours a week for some of you. And much of that is in the political realm, and it will insist, beginning this afternoon, when you go to your phone, that that you just ignore everything I've just told you in the last 30 minutes. So I'm up against, I'm, I'm swimming upstream here, I get it. You, if you take this challenge seriously, are swimming upstream. Don't try to unify. Don't try to give hope. Don't try to understand the other side. Don't try to unite under something bigger than this platform or that platform. Don't do that. I mean, it'll hurt our cause. What cause? What, what cause could be greater than what Jesus prayed for in John 17? What could be greater? When Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow are your discipleship leaders, you got a problem. When you scroll through social media more than you ingest the scriptures, when you're choosing, you are choosing in those moments who you're following. Check your loyalty. Who are you really allowing to disciple you? Who are you really following in that moment? Because if it's those characters, you're not going to be able to do any of the things that we're talking about here that scripture pretty explicitly says the body of Christ, this is how you're supposed to relate to each other. Now, here's the ultimate reason for that. Look at John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. He mentions it twice in the same verse. The issues are important. This nation is important, but it's not eternal. It won't last forever. A lot of times in in the midst of messages like this or other kinds of conversation, I've I've heard people go, Pastor, I I don't even know where you're at. Like, where's Joel on some of this? 
Well, I have opinions. I do. In fact, check my Facebook page if you're connected with me. It says political views, and it tells you what they are right next to it. You want to know what it says? Right next to political views. It says, I have them. That's what it says. Now, does that mean I'm trying to be coy? That I'm trying? No, no. In fact, some of the folks that are closest to me who are members of this congregation have heard some of them. Why do I not share them now? As though they are, thus says the Lord. Because in this context, they don't matter. And neither do yours. They don't. Let me tell you what does matter. It's an eternal kingdom. And if every political conversation we have can somehow be connected to that kingdom, this kingdom's going to get better for it. It will. So let me give you just a, a practical suggestion here. You're a Democrat, and you're, inter you're interacting with a Republican. Maybe instead of starting with, you're evil, your candidate's evil, you're, maybe start with, look, there's some things I don't understand, and ask some questions, and then do what James says. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Same if you're a Republican, by the way. You're not exempt from this. There's things I don't understand. Allow them to speak. I can almost guarantee you two things. Number one, you're going to learn some things you did not know. And number two, you're probably still going to very strongly disagree. And that's okay. That's all right. Lean into the other person and learn. Secondly, find some areas of commonality. I mean, this can happen even with non-Christians. It just can. Look, I... We've talked about that here. Like some issues really are crystal clear when it comes to the Bible. So when it comes to abortion, for example, it's sinful because it's murder, period. Okay? And so I, I can't, right? So what if I'm, what if I'm engaging a non-Christian who doesn't see it that way? I, I can have the discussion. It can be tense. But when we get to the end of it, what have we done other than make each other mad? So let me encourage you to push in a little deeper even with your non-Christian friends and go, okay, will you? Because most people, they're not pro-abortion, right? And so, all right, well, if we agree that we ought to reduce it, how do we do that? How do we look at the pro-life issue holistically since as a follower of Jesus, I value all life created in the image of God? Let me cross some lines with you and let's figure out how we can reduce the number of babies whose lives are terminated before they're born. And, and, and by the way, once they're born, they got to be taken care of. So let's find ways that we can strengthen, econ not just economically, although that matters, but in other ways, the family. Let's talk about the fact that it, there are some racial disparities in our justice system. You can have a young black man that goes to prison for 10 years for the exact same crime that a young white man might get probation for. We might need to straighten some of that out. And when that young man becomes an older man and he served his time and he gets out, maybe he shouldn't be labeled as a felon for the rest of his life so that he's able to get a job and take care of that child who we say we valued before he was born. You see how all this kind of works together? Let's find the points of commonality. And then, here's the final thing. Because one of you is still going to be a Democrat, the other is still going to be a Republican. Let's agree together, I mean with a fist bump, that we're going to go back to our parties and we're going to be their worst nightmare. We are going to be the fly in the ointment. They are going to hate to see us coming because we are going to remind them your party platform, which I share most of, is not inspired of God. In fact, there's several areas here. And let's talk through those kinds of things. That's how you connect political conversation around this kingdom with that higher one, and it's how you make this one better. It's how it happens. And brothers and sisters, you and me, we are that hope. I'm going to talk next week about what that looks like, but for now, let me just give you that. We are the city set on a hill. We're that. What would it look like for us to act like that? What would it look like for us to listen to each other? What would it look like if we let Scripture drive our politics rather than the other way around? What would it look like if we worked together in spite of our differences and served our communities in common areas, even in areas where our church is already at work serving the helpless and serving the vulnerable and making our community better? What would it look like for people who have radically different visions for how to move civil society forward to realize that 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue can't fix everything that's wrong with German Street?
that it's you, it's me as a community, and that followers of Jesus are to be the light and the salt that makes that change. There's your hope and mine. But we've got to be willing to do the hard stuff, and we have to be committed to being that city set on a hill. Father in heaven, I thank you for everyone in this group. Lord, I love them all. I imagine if we got into political discussion, there'd be many of them that I'd, most of what they say I'd agree with. There'd be others, most of what they say I, I would have some real problems with. But Father, I pray that you would help us all to remember that at the end of the day, even as important as some of those issues are, these relationships are really what matter. Because these relationships are where unity is forged. These relationships are where the broader ideas of the kingdom of God make both of our political parties and thus our nation better. These are the relationships that form the church which 10,000 years from now when nobody even knows what an American flag looks like will still exist and will still give you glory. Lord, may we serve. Forgive us in, for, for the times in which we have acted like the world. Forgive us for times where we have been silent because we think that we can somehow cordon off one part of our lives from your lordship. And Lord, empower us to move forward having these conversations. There's several different fronts on which we're already beginning to have them, and I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And I pray that they grow exponentially, regardless of what happens in November, regardless of who is sworn in in January. Lord, may we play our part. May we live godly and quiet lives. May we honor those who are elected, no matter who they are. May we, Lord, be the very citizens who make this kingdom better in the name of the coming kingdom. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.